Hello and welcome to Double Reel, a film podcast by an armchair fan with no qualifications either to make podcasts or to comment on cinema as an art form. If it were released as a movie, it would be called Double Reel, colon, just another nerdy film podcast. My name's James Adamson and I'm an ordinary member of the public with no standing in the media or the film industry. I've decided to do a podcast because everyone's doing one these days and quite frankly I'm in COVID-19 lockdown and I'm bored. I've no idea if anyone is going to download this and listen to it, but if you do, and it wasn't by accident, you can find me on Twitter on at filmanorak73. You're welcome to give me feedback on the podcast or your own thoughts on the films I discussed or any other film-related thoughts you feel like sharing. If not, I'll just invent some feedback and read it out on my next podcast to pretend I'm really big and popular. I know that no one needs another film podcast because there are loads out there already. My favourites are Komodo Mayo, Komodo on Film, that's two Mark Komodes, and How Did This Get Made? Still, I'm going to do one anyway. I'm not trying to copy anyone else, and I certainly don't think I can do anything to their standard. What I decided to do was something that would interest me and go from there. I'm going to try and make a monthly podcast that's a bit like one of the magazines you can presumably still buy in shops. That is, if anyone still buys print media and there are any shops left after the pandemic. It wouldn't be one of the big glossy ones with proper writers and star interviews like Empire and Total Film, but it might be tucked in at the back and only get bought when the others are out of stock. I'm still kind of working out the format, but I'd like to discuss some films that I'm into that maybe haven't had the recognition they deserve, and some obscure stories and tall tales of films that were going to get made but didn't. I'd like to imagine a parallel universe where those less celebrated films were huge hits and changed the world, and those missing films actually got made, and we got to see the vision those directors had tried so desperately to bring to life. I've got a couple of other things I want to talk about that I'm less sure if they're going to work. I'll try them, and if they turn out to be shit, I'll go back to the drawing board. Oh, and maybe I should mention, there will probably be some foul language in this podcast. Coming up in this episode, a roundup of the films I've watched this month, a look at some of the great and important films I've been meaning to watch but find it hard to get around to, a look at an underrated or less well-known film that I want to tell you about, which is Brian De Palma's Blowout. Uh, the feature on a film that famously never got made but I wish it did is John Carpenter's Firestarter. And to finish, we've got something I've called Remake Hate Watch, where I complain about a bad and unnecessary remake of a great film. So I'm going to give you a breakdown of what's been going on in my world of film this month. I'm uh, not the person to give you the film news and review all the latest releases. I don't even get to see all the regular releases. And if you want film news, you can read the internet. But it's nice to be able to talk about the films I watched and the experience I had. Hopefully the same for you. That's why people watch films on TV, because you feel like you're not the only person watching it. Now we're in lockdown and the cinemas are shut. It's all about what's available for home viewing. But maybe if I talk about what it's like for me to watch films and my experience, it'll chime with you a little bit. And also it might remind you that certain films are out or available and you might want to watch them yourself. I think like a lot of people when I'm at home watching a film or trying to watch a film it's the same process for everyone isn't it? You go through that endless Netflix search and you've used up about half the time you would normally have spent to watch the film and you're still scrolling through the 37th menu and still haven't seen anything or you think oh, I won't watch that this time. You end up watching The Terminator for the 22nd time. Also, if there's two of you there and you don't, you know, obviously don't want to complain about not being alone, but if you have to find something you both want to watch, it does make it a little bit harder to find something. And if you want to make time to watch something by yourself, you have to do that without seeming antisocial. Obviously, if you've got children like I have, you've also got to fit that in around everything else. And again, not complaining about having children, but I do like watching films. I think recently, with everything that's going on in the world, it's been about escapism. I noticed a lot of people have been watching uh, Contagion and Outbreak, and that's the last thing I want to fucking watch right now. I think I've been going back to films that I saw when I was younger or films that I've seen before. 
I'm trying to watch new stuff, but I think it's sometimes nice to have a little bit of cinematic comfort food, and I think that's what I've been doing this month. So the first film that I watched this month was Mad Max 2. I caught the tail end of it on TV and immediately went and dug out my own copy of it and started watching it from the beginning. It's a film I can go back to over and over again. It set the template for so many modern action films, but no one does it like George Miller. It's got these unbelievable action sequences and fights and car chases, and it's stripped down to the bare essentials with this bleak world that somehow has these cute moments in it that make you laugh, but also have you gripped to the edge of your seat. The characters are always stripped down to the bare essentials and you hear a little bit about them, but you find yourself compelled by their stories and their struggles. And Mel Gibson's iconic Max character is always great. Perhaps the highlight of the whole film is the henchman played by Vernon Wells, the man with the Mohican and the hugely sadomasochistic love of violence and death. He did something similar when he played the villain in Commando. He's always worth checking out. It's just up there on its own as a sheer adrenaline thrill ride of a, an action film. That just made me go and watch Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. I just felt like watching all the Mad Max films. And Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, it's not as good as the others. I think it's probably the weakest of the franchise. I still enjoy it, but it's not the one I go back to as much as the others. It doesn't have the sheer visual flair of Fury Road or the intensity of the first two. It's obviously worth attempting different stories, and the, the, the Barter Town and the Thunderdome fight are good. But it sort of loses its way when he gets lost and found by the group of children who live under the waterfall. And from there, it turns into a kind of post-apocalyptic version of The Goonies. And I wouldn't mind watching a post-apocalyptic version of The Goonies, but I was trying to watch a Mad Max film. So I think it's a case of not getting what you're expecting when you watch this film. Towards the end, you do get a proper straight-head action car chase, and it does end well. There's enough of the usual striking design and interesting... Uh, visuals from a George Miller film and some things that he ended up perfecting in Fury Road like Barter Town and that world dominated by a shadowy character except it's not Tina Turner in the new film and there's a pale strange wordless boy who gets involved in a lot of the action in Beyond Thunderdome which he took to the next level with his those crazy boys including Nicholas Holt that are in Fury Road so it's worth watching and it's enjoyable but a bit more disposable than I would say the other Mad Max films are. I did find time to watch a new film this month, which was Extraction. It's a Netflix exclusive. My wife and I sat down to watch that. She likes watching Chris Hemsworth in films. You can imagine that. It was it was okay. It's obviously designed to be a really great action film. The director is a stuntman who got behind the director's chair for the first time. It's one of those films, I guess, that suffers from the fact that they were so busy coming up with good action sequences that they forgot to do a story or a story that was particularly new or compelling. If you like that kind of action film, you probably get more out of watching the John Wick films and certainly the Raid films. It was okay. Chris Hemsworth is good. There's a really good long single take or seemingly single take action sequence in the middle. I've got to be honest though, it was a bit late. I was feeding the baby, missed a couple of bit of plot points and fell asleep for about five minutes. I probably wouldn't watch it again. It's probably worth tuning into if you've seen everything else, but it wasn't fantastic. Another film I watched was Sam Peckinpah's The Getaway, which was the star vehicle he did with Steve McQueen. That was, it's not one of his best, but it's, a, it's an enjoyable film because it's a heist movie and a crime film. It's got some of his usual kind of dark touches, which perhaps sit uneasily in what's meant to be a mainstream film, but it's got an absolutely fantastic Hitchcockian style train chase that's almost got no dialogue and no, you know, very little sound, which is really gripping. Definitely worth watching, especially if you like a heist film and haven't seen that one. That's from about 1972. I also saw On Her Majesty's Secret Service on TV. I actually watched this in two parts on different nights because ITV something or other 
was showing it repeatedly over the course of a week. It's actually a really good Bond film. It doesn't get the same attention as the others because it's got George Lazenby in it, and he's not really all that good. Um, it suffers from stopping in the middle so he can shag all the women in the world instead of getting on with the story. But it does have some really good fight sequences and a tremendous chase down a bobsleigh track. Definitely worth you know tuning into if you haven't seen every Bond film. Everyone's surely seen every Bond film, hasn't they? I watched uh, Fast and Furious 8 also on TV. I missed the first half hour of Vin Diesel showing everyone what a great bloke he is in Cuba. And frankly, I was all the better for missing that. That's another very good action film, if you don't mind it being completely preposterous. Uh, Charlize Theron's a bit underused in it, I thought. You know, if you've seen her in the action films that she's done, she's actually sitting behind her desk pushing buttons most of the time. She could have been involved in more with the fighting. I'd have enjoyed it more. It also loses a bit of tension, some of these Fast and Furious films, because even the worst villains know more than two installments away from being on the side of the good guys. But it was okay. I also saw Now You See Me. I just happened to tune into that. And that's utterly preposterous, but quite fun. The idea of a group of magicians or illusionists pulling off a big heist, I kind of like the idea of that, although it's kind of, no one has that much CGI in real life, but it was okay. So far, the opening episode of this film nerd podcast hasn't been all that groundbreaking, I'll admit. We've learnt that Mad Max films have great car chases in them. ITV4 likes to show Bond films. And the Fast and the Furious franchise has turned into basically superhero films for car mechanics. But like any self-respecting film nerd, I'm also interested in watching a wide range of classic art house and foreign films, cinematic milestones by the great auteurs, hidden gems and so on. It's all very well watching Indiana Jones again because you want a bit of escapism in the middle of coronavirus, or the cinemas are currently closed, or no one can agree on what new film to watch. But this podcast needs a bit of variety. This audience, if there is one, deserves a bit of variety. Well, look at that list of films that I watched this month, and I enjoyed them all, and there are some very good ones there. But for every one of those films that I watched again, because I felt like just sitting and chilling out, there was a more interesting film on my shelf or on my watch list that I could have watched instead, something classic, something interesting, something I've been meaning to see for a long time. And apart from the escapism and the Netflix selection headache that I talked about, Sometimes I think I might have a bit of a mental block about some of those films. Once you've got it into your head that you should watch this film, or you should have watched this film, that there's a gap, it creates this uh, pressure. Think, oh, I should have watched that. Why didn't I watch that? I've watched Terminator again. This is the the way that, you know, great films don't get seen. So I think about going to see them, and then the longer it goes on, the harder it gets to watch it, because you just feel more bad about it. You don't want to watch it at the wrong time, because you know, you've been told this is a great classic, you know this is an absolutely fantastic film. You don't want to watch it when you're just about to feed the baby and he's grizzling a bit, or you're a bit tired, because you might think, I didn't really enjoy that film as much as I should have done. What's wrong with this film? What's wrong with me? You start to create excuses, like uh, the films are at the back of the DVD shelf, that all these sort of things, if I go and get it, um, before you know it, it goes on again, but you haven't watched it. I look at the list of films I could have watched this month. I've got some of the DVDs sitting in front of me right now. David Cronenberg's Crash. All these years I haven't seen it. Over 20 years, the DVD is sitting on my shelf, still in the cell of Ben Rapping. haven't watched it. Got to pick the right time to watch that. I know my wife is going to watch it at all. She sees me watching it. She's going to wonder what's wrong with me. Punch Drunk Love. Can you believe that? Punch Drunk Love, the Paul Thomas Anderson classic. I'm a huge fan of Paul Thomas Anderson. 
it's the film Mark Kermode always goes on about as the example of Adam Sandler being a lot better than those uh, cheesy films that he does. Sitting in cellophane on my shelf as well. Again, those are two films I need to catch at the right time and yet I haven't watched them. I've always um, <clears throat> thinking about how much I love Korean cinema and yet there are some big Korean films I haven't got around to seeing. Lady Vengeance, didn't get around to see it. Still sitting here not having seen it. Train to Busan. I like zombie films. This is supposed to be really good. I just haven't got around to seeing it. Again, those are two films I'm really not sure I can get my wife to see. The extended version of Das Boot, or Das Boot if you really know you're German, but it's sitting on my shelf again. I'm like, yeah, you've watched the shortened version they put on TV. You haven't watched the proper extended version. Problem, especially the problem with that, when I look at my DVD shelf and see Das Boot, I don't want to think about the alphabetical conundrum that it presents to me. I've filed my uh, DVDs alphabetically by title. I wanted to do it alphabetically by director of photography, but that's a bit too geeky even for me. I look at Das Boot and I think, should I file it under D for Das or B for Boot? If it was in English, it would be the boat, it would be for, for, for boat, but I can't, I can't resolve that in my mind. I don't even want to look at that DVD, let alone actually put it in the machine and watch the film. Les Diaboliques, classic film, French version of Hitchcock, another one I want to see. I don't think my wife's going to want to watch it, she's not keen on black and white films. Just sitting there. Wages of Fear, Wages of Fear, what a classic. I can imagine trying to get my wife to watch that. Do you remember that film Sorcerer that Kermode's always going on about, that I dragged you to the cinema to see that you didn't like? Yes. That was a remake. Uh, this Wages of Fear is the original version from the 1950s, in black and white and in French. Nope, not happening. That is not going to get seen. So because this podcast leads me to have watched something more than just films that were on the telly, I bit the bullet, I forced myself to make some time, and as a result, I got to watch one of this list of classic films that I've been putting off for such a long time. So that's already a positive for me, starting this podcast. It came down to the two Korean films, I thought, let's get into that. And uh, I don't have physical copies of either of those films. I looked on my streaming services, one of them you have to pay for at the moment, which is Train to Busan. One of them's already included in my package. So that's Lady Vengeance. So that was my decision. I'm watching Lady Vengeance. Set aside the time, sat down to watch it. And I'm really glad I did sit down to watch it because the sense of excitement at finally getting to see something I've been putting off for so long was uh, worthwhile. It was worth watching it just, just for that feeling at the beginning, having been uh, sat at home in the middle of lockdown and everything, to feel a little bit of excitement about watching a film that you normally only get from going to the cinema to see something you've been waiting for for a long time was a nice feeling. So Lady Vengeance, it's directed by Park Chan-wook, who's one of the more celebrated and perhaps more art house the current Korean uh, directors, he's gone on to do some films over here in the West, and it's part of what he calls his Vengeance Trilogy, and the other two films in that series are Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance in 2002, and Old Boy in 2003. Uh, Lady Vengeance is the, the final part of that trilogy, and was, uh, was released in 2005. As a trilogy, it's not a continuation of the story with each film, it's more of a thematic uh, trilogy, three films about the same generalised topic of taking revenge. So you could call it uh, a trilogy along the same lines of, say, uh, the Three Colours trilogy, or if you're a bit less highbrow than that, the uh, Ed Wright Cornetto trilogy. It's really strange and, and really, uh, really interesting and compelling to watch this film. It's really quite uh, slow-paced. As I say, it's very art house, but e even then, it was still one of the top ten films at the South Korean box office this year, and that reminded me that that's why I love Korean cinema so much, because everything they do is meteor and more three-dimensional than their Hollywood counterparts. 
they don't talk down to their audience, but films that, that do challenge you a bit more, they still do well in the mainstream. Uh, they're well known for their action films and being quite bloody, but their characters and storylines tend to be just that little bit more compelling than, than anything over here because they're not afraid of a bit of bleakness. They're not af they don't let their uh, they don't let their characters off. They don't let the, the audience off. They really make them confront you know some you know harsh truths and all the better for it. I haven't seen as much Queen Zulu as I should, but as I as I say, instead of watching older films again, really great to watch this and. and Get that opportunity to be properly mindfucked, which is something you get in Korean cinema. Even you know, even when you're watching an action blockbuster, you get that as well. So, this film is about a woman who, uh, when she was a teenager, she uh, she got pregnant. Uh, the boyfriend was just another schoolboy, uh, same year as her, and wasn't interested. So she went to live with uh, a teacher because she was terrified of what her parents would do to her because uh, they're very strict and traditional. Unfortunately for her, the teacher was uh, a degenerate who groomed her and used her for his kidnap uh, plots that he took out on the children in, in his own schools. Um, one of those kidnappings goes wrong, the child dies. She is forced to uh, confess to the murder even though the teacher did it, not her, because he threatens the life of her own child if she doesn't uh, do it. She goes to prison, the child gets put up for adoption in Australia, and 13 years later she comes out of prison having uh, concocted this really elaborate revenge plan to get him back. And from that, I must admit, I was waiting to see how it would play out with, with Old Boy in my mind, because I've seen Old Boy, and that's just a, such an intense uh, gut punch of a film, especially the final act. And um, this is quite different to that. There's a lot of um, flashbacks playing around the time sequence. It's got, as I say, quite slow paced. The, the music is this uh, 18th century, 19th century style chamber music, which gives it this almost sort of stillness to it, like a, a very kind of uh, prim and proper story is being played out, except what's on screen isn't prim and proper at all. And you gradually learn that there's a lot more to it. She feels guilty about more than just what she did. This uh, teacher got up to more than just killing that child. And as the story uh, progresses, you do finally get your gut punch. It plays out a very different way to Old Boy. I would say Old Boy is quite, uh, it's quite, it's quite an unusual storyline. It's quite over the top in, in a lot of ways. This is actually a lot more grounded, or there's some very fantastical elements, and it's more recognisable situations. A lot of it's to do with parents and uh, you know the fears they have for their children. So as a parent myself, I was really sort of knocked back by that. Especially there's a, some videos featuring child hostages, which was pretty tough to watch. I've got to say. As it happens, despite me making all that noise about my wife not really liking films like this, she kind of walked into the room and sat down and watched the last hour with me, and was as, as gripped by it as I was. Um, and as it plays out towards the end, it really it really pays off. It it is quite arty, I've got to say. If that's not your thing, you might not be interested in, in seeing this. But it's got some beautiful imagery. It looks amazing. It's got very very nicely played performances, although it's all it's all quite mannered. Um, and in the end, you get some really interesting uh, insights into, you know, taking revenge is not as simple as it sounds, even though as, as a parent, you think, yeah, I, I would want you know, the worst possible punishment for someone who did that. The way it plays out on screen kind of shows you that it's not that straightforward, but, it, but in some really interesting ways. So I'm definitely glad I watched it. It's a really... It's a really tremendous film. It kind of explains why Park Chan-wook went and did the films that he did in... Uh, in the West, um, 
he's done sort of costume dramas over here in the, in the UK and it, it makes sense that he would do that because even though this plays out in what you call the modern day, it almost plays out like a costume drama. Beautifully, beautifully made film. Absolutely kicked my ass, but in a different way to how Old Boy did. And it just goes to show if there's an opportunity to watch a Korean film, you should just go ahead and watch it. So that's Lady Vengeance. Safe to say I'm recommending that you watch this film. Uh, it was so good that I didn't even uh, lose the sort of the tense atmosphere, even when I had to stop the film a couple of times for a nappy change. So that the baby, not me, I hasten to add. And if you want to watch that, it's currently available on Amazon Prime. The main character, Lady Vengeance, for want of a better phrase, is played by Lee Young A, who is very good. I apologise if I haven't pronounced her name correctly yet. This isn't a strong uh, point of mine. Choi Min Sik played one of the main characters as well. You'd recognise him if you'd seen Old Boy. He was the main character in that. And there's also a fairly significant character played by Kim Byung Ok, who was also in Old Boy. Director Park Chan-wook is one of the most acclaimed and successful filmmakers in Korea and now internationally. He's uh, clearly interested in, in Western filmmaking because he said uh, in an interview that he was inspired to be a filmmaker when he first saw Hitchcock's Vertigo. That's another recommendation for you um, if you haven't seen that. And he has since come to do some films in the West. He directed Stoker and the Handmaiden. He also uh, produced Snowpiercer, which is quite well known over here, and he directed a John McCarry miniseries, The Little Drama Girl, for the BBC, which is not really very typical of his output. He tends to be a bit more left field and sort of indie style than a lot of Korean filmmakers I've seen, but he has a, a genuinely unique vision and he's you know really interesting and, and, and stylish and always worth a watch. So now I've come to a feature called Hidden Gems, where I talk about films that I think are classics, truly great films that weren't celebrated uh, enough at the time when they came out, don't really get as much attention uh, as other classic films, and deserve more attention. Like I said at the beginning, I'd like to imagine a parallel universe where perhaps these films had the impact they deserved, were big hits, and maybe the world would be a little different as a result. Uh, for this episode, this month, I want to talk about Brian De Palma's Blowout. Blowout was released in 1981, directed and written by Brian De Palma. After a decade where he'd emerged as one of the leading lights of the 70s film school generation of filmmakers, he's a contemporary of Spielberg, Scorsese, George Lucas and Coppola. It's a political conspiracy thriller about a sound engineer for films who accidentally records the moment a car accident takes place, killing the man driving the car. The car's blown out a tyre, hence the title, and veered off a bridge into a lake. Our protagonist, a sound engineer, dives in and rescues the passenger, a young woman. It turns out the man who died was an up-and-coming presidential candidate, and the woman is a prostitute who was paid to be seen with him to cause a scandal and damage his campaign. The sound engineer, played by John Travolta, begins to suspect the whole thing was a deliberate assassination and obsessively investigates. Prior to making this film, Brian De Palma was mostly known for psychological or psychosexual thrillers, heavily influenced by Alfred Hitchcock, but taking the voyeurism and kinky sexuality of Hitchcock's films to new heights, or depths, depending on your point of view. He has people who are huge fans of his, but also people who find it all a bit much. 
it's worth taking a moment to look at De Palma's links to Hitchcock. He's a real, real film school geek who loves Alfred Hitchcock's films and has almost remade, to an extent, some of Hitchcock's stories in his films. Everything he does has a, that kind of glossy sheen that Hitchcock's films had. You look at the films that he made in the 1970s and you can the influences are right there to be seen. Uh, one of his early films, Sisters, clearly makes use of the storylines from Rope and Rear Window. Uh, Obsession, which came out in 1976, uh, nods a lot to Vertigo. It also has a score by Bernard Herrmann, who did the music for several Hitchcock films, including Vertigo itself. Um, Carrie, which also came out in 1976, one of um, De Palma's biggest hits, the one that really made his breakthrough. Um, the whole story takes place at Bates High School. You can have a bigger nod to Hitchcock's Psycho than that. Um, and while the plot isn't taken from a Hitchcock film, because it's a Stephen King adaptation, Brian De Palma plays the whole thing out the way a Hitchcock film would, focusing on the ordeal and suffering of the female main character. His follow-up, Fury, in 1978, has got a lot uh, borrowed from The Man Who Knew Too Much, obviously with the telekinesis and sort of conspiracy thrown in. Uh, and in 1980, he did a film called Dress to Kill, which just goes to show you could actually have an even bigger tribute to Psycho than uh, than he had it with the Bates High School reference, because the, the plot of, of, of Psycho was borrowed heavily for Dress to Kill. He did another film in 1984 after Blowout came out called Body Double, which is rear window with a bit of vertigo thrown in. That, that's a little bit harsh because he uses Hitchcock's influences. He's really interested in Hitchcock's style and... Uh, ability to make suspense really work um, and he comes from that generation of filmmakers who had been to film school, watched a lot of films and you know like, like to wear their influences on their sleeve. Um, he likes to show influences in all the films that he makes, for example The Untouchables, another one of his more well-known films. Um, the shootout down the, the steps in the train station is heavily borrowed from Battleship Potemkin by Sergei Eisenstein, an old Simon movie. Um, a lot of his films are not just about the story that he's telling, but about films themselves. So it shouldn't surprise you that Quentin Tarantino is a big Brian De Palma fan. If you're a fan of Brian De Palma, which I am, I think you'd say that, of course he has influences, and of course you can see those influences in his films. Uh, in his early films, his influence is a lot more obvious, and then he sort of matures a bit as a director. And, and saying that he's influenced by Alfred Hitchcock is like saying that anyone who made guitar music after about 1970 was influenced by the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. There's nothing wrong with it if the film itself is good and original. And a lot of what De Palma does is really good and really original. Um, unfortunately, despite Blowout being a real classic, probably his best film, uh, it was it was a flop. It made $13 million at the box office against an $18 million budget. These numbers all seem a bit mad now compared to the $200 million that you get for big blockbusters nowadays. But $18 million made it a fairly big film. $13 million wasn't bad box office, but not nearly good enough for, for that kind of budget. In the decade following Blowout, uh, De Palma mostly moved away from doing films like this. Uh, his films tended to be more mainstream, big Hollywood projects based on other people's scripts and stories. And that's partly at least because Blowout failed at the box office. Uh, nowadays, the films he did throughout the, you know, the 80s onwards are among his best known, like Scarface and The Untouchables. He also directed the first Mission Impossible film. And while that film's got all the usual Brian De Palma touches um, and Hitchcock liked to spy thriller, sure enough, it's not as personal to him as his earlier stuff, culminating in Blowout. Um, Blowout itself seems like Brian De Palma taking a real step up with his films. Um, before that, it was very much a, a case that his films were 
bit of a tribute, a bit more influence perhaps than they need to be of Hitchcock. Whereas in this film, everything is tied together much more tightly and put together in a way which just serves the story. Uh, and what a hell of a story it is. John Travolta is the sound engineer. Uh, he works in cheesy uh, B-movie horror films. Um, he's down on his luck. He previously worked in, in, in better circumstances, but it went wrong for him. He's maybe looking for a bit of personal redemption. Uh, Nancy Allen, who was married to Brian De Palma for a while and is in some of his, his, his classic films. She plays the uh, cool girl who gets uh, caught up in the whole thing. And the two of them are, you know, caught in the story. And John Travolta's sound engineer is absolutely obsessed with finding out the truth and what happened. Um, as you'd expect, that gets them in trouble because something dodgy was going on and the people uh, trying to cover this up will stop at nothing, including murder, to cover their tracks. These are all things that you expect in a film, but it's just how brilliantly, perfectly tightly it's done. There are things that Brian De Palma's known for like this, a 360 pan round the room with the camera and uh, there's Hitchcock uh, style chases through famous public places. The, the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia features quite heavily here. All of those touches are there, the style, the um, he's very good at using music in a similar way that Hitchcock did to really hit home what's happening. But the story really cranks it up and it's about films a little bit as well because Brian De Palma is one of those people and the sound engineer for films becomes a really important part of the story. As well as the usual suspense and jeopardy chases and a fair amount of death and destruction, there are three key scenes which are not particularly kind of mobile or active, but they're incredibly gripping and they get the audience absolutely on the side and in the mind of the person uh, who's trying to investigate what's happened. Um, the, the whole idea of voyeurism in cinema is that these directors are trying to make you um, almost complicit in, in the, the central character's actions, uh, which is what Hitchcock mastered that, Brian De Palma absolutely mastered that. And in these three key scenes, that's what you get. Um, the night of the accident, when the whole story kicks off, John Travolta's character is out recording night sounds for his film, and it, it isolates each owl call or wind rustle that he's trying to capture. You hear the sound through Travolta's headphones, and then it cuts and shows you where that sound is happening, and it makes you really focus on it. And when the sounds that actually happened in, in the case are significant, it reminds you that each sound uh, brings back some sort of memory. This follows up where he's in his uh, editing room and he's winding and rewinding the tape of the accident to try and capture the moment that the tyre exploded. And he's trying to see if there was a gunshot. Did someone shoot the tyre or was it an accident? And each time he plays the sound, he tries to picture it happening and the film shows you that happening. Uh, and John Travolta's character is desperate to prove himself that he's not going mad and that there is something going on here. And there's a, a scene sort of later on in the film where he's missed something and he's trying to piece together all of his recordings and he's quite desperate, he's trying to work out what he's missed. So as well as all the action and suspense, you get this moment where you are absolutely with that character going, did I hear that? Am I going mad? What's really going on? And that intimacy makes you absolutely gripped and, and, and just living the story with the main characters. So all of the, the touches and the style and the stuff that you learn in film school you don't have to be interested in that. You can just be gripped by this whole story. And that's the other thing about uh, De Palma is that the, the, the film um, 
the films that are about making films are often loved by Hollywood insiders more than fans are. Things like The Player and, to an extent, La La Land. Um, this film has a whole film within a film sequence where we see the second-rate slasher film that Travolta is uh, recording sounds for. You don't have to be interested in that. If you are, it's a lovely extra touch because it reminds you of other things, but you, it works as a film without you being remotely interested in that. Um, again, if you are interested in some of the, the, the other films that, that inspired this, uh, this De Palma effort, Antonioni's Blow Up is a, a major um, sort of touch point. That's a film about a photographer who thinks he might have captured a, a murder in one of the photographs he was taking and blows it up higher and higher trying to see what went on. Um, Francis Coppola's The Conversation about overhearing a uh, what possibly is a murder plot, again a politically motivated murder plot, which is a classic 70s conspiracy thriller. And the incident in the car accident seems to bear a resemblance to Ted Kennedy's accident at Chappaquiddick where a, a young girl died. Now the Palmer downplayed those similarities to, to Chappaquiddick because I don't think he wanted this whole discussion uh, of his film to be about the Kennedys, JFK, the Grassy Knoll and all that. Um, what he wanted to do was take things that inspired him and create uh, a compelling story. And it really should have been a hit. It's a stunning film. It's got fantastic heart and mouth tension um, because it comes from that 70s uh, stable, even though it was made in 1981, of downbeat political conspiracy thrillers. There's no guarantee that everyone's going to come out of this okay. So you really are worrying about what's going to happen. Um, John Travolta may not be your cup of tea, um, but he's never been better than in this film. He's, uh, this is probably the performance that inspired Tarantino to put him in Pulp Fiction. Uh, uh, Tarantino calls Blowout one of his three favourite films. Um, and the critics absolutely loved it. I mean, Brandon Palmer always has uh, his fans amongst the critics, especially Pauline Couch from The New Yorker, who's a, a giant among film critics up there with Roger Ebert. Um, she appreciated the technical and cinematic flair of his films. Everyone loved this film. It got universal acclaim. Um, but it wasn't it. It flopped at the box office. It didn't really get anyone's um, engine running. And when films like this uh, don't do as well as they do at the time, even, even when they enjoy a critical re-evaluation, not even critical because it was critically appreciated at the time, but in recent you know, decades, Blowout has been accepted as, yeah, that's a classic, that was a great film, that should have been seen more. But it's kind of too late, and, and that's why I'm doing this slot in, in the film, because obviously a, a film is, is good if it's good, and just because it didn't do well at the box office doesn't mean you shouldn't pick up the DVD or Blu-ray and watch it for yourself. You absolutely should, it's a fantastic film. But it does make a difference if a film finds an audience, because when a director is successful and does really well at the box office, the, the producers want him to do another film. And if he's got a, a really good idea that he really wants to make and he's just come off the back of a hit, he gets more scope to make, he or she gets more scope to make that film. If, if the film flops, it's not so easy to pull that off. I mean, some people manage to pull it off. I mean, Michael Mann manages to pull this off, even though, even though his films don't often make do that well at the box office. But it can't have helped Brian De Palma that this, this film, which was meant to be everything he pulled together into the kind of great films that he's capable of making, didn't really do that well. Um, and that's why I like to think of the parallel universe in which this would have chimed with, with audiences and, and, and really been successful. In our world, Brian De Palma wasn't a very successful and went and did other things. And some of those films are great. I think Scarface is a great film. It's not everybody's favourite. The Untouchables is great. Mission Impossible is great. 
Um, but it would have been really interesting if this had inspired a, a different outcome for his films. I would have loved to have seen this film uh, have the, the, the influence that Brian De Palma's hits have had. Carrie has always remembered the iconic scenes of Sissy Spacek and the, the blood and, the, and the, the high school on fire. Scarface is, uh, seems to have influenced every hip-hop uh, music video ever since. And The Untouchables is you know, well-known, is always on television. Um, and Blowout isn't hardly shown on television. It's not a, as well-known if you have a chat with fellow film geeks over a drink and talk about great films. This, this, is, this doesn't seem to get a mention as often. And it, it's a shame because this film had the pizzazz and flash that people seemed to want in the 80s uh, instead of the sort of more grey and downbeat um, look that, that 70s films might have had, like all the President's Men and Parallax Views. Um, but it, it has the substance of those films, and it would have been great if people had said, look, we don't want flares and beige colours anymore, but we still want um, films for grown-ups that give you all of this uh, suspense and tension, but a more real story, like you're getting if you're a South Korean film fan, everything you go and see has got a bit more three-dimensional stuff to it, and the 80s didn't turn out like that, as much as I like a lot of 80s films. Looking at 70s films, that kind of downbeat realism substance is just it's just everywhere it's in every film uh, almost even a mainstream film like capricorn one had government cover-up in it uh, alien in 1979 wasn't just about a murderous space creature lurking on board a ship it was also about how a corporation would engineer the whole situation and kill off the crew just to get hold of the creature for its bioweapons division and sadly political thrillers don't seem to have as much about them as they used to they had a bit of a, a, a burst of popularity in the 1960s of things like The Manchurian Candidate. They had this real heyday in the 70s because the counterculture was big in Hollywood and with things like All the President's Men and uh, the Parallax View and the Conversation, there was this interest from the public in post-Watergate in how the government might be letting everybody down and, and, and not on your side. But in the 80s, not so much. There's some great stuff in the 80s, some terrific... You know, action films and thrillers and, and, and various terrific uh, stories of various kinds, but these kinds of films just weren't so much in demand. Films like Salvador and Under Fire, critics loved them, but there just wasn't much demand for them. No one went to see them. No Way Out was a political thriller that was a hit, but it really used political intrigue and conspiracy for its plot, but wasn't really about that. It was about the main character, played by Kevin Costa, personally being caught up in something. And in the 90s, it had a little bit of a revival of that sort of political thriller style of thing. But it seemed like a vehicle for American filmmakers to yearn, as they often do, for the good old days. But in a different way to, you know, when it was nice and mom and pop made you apple pie for you. It was going back to that time when things were more idealistic and wishing it was more like that. Which is why JFK and something like Sneakers, they were successful films in the 90s for... Um, wish fulfillment that we can go back to being that kind of more idealistic American and you just don't get that as much and perhaps if Blowout had been as successful as it deserved to be we might have got more of that I'm not saying we should stop having all the great 80s films that you got but perhaps something with a bit more substance and realism to it would have made film better and more interesting so that's my 100% unqualified enthusiastic recommendation for you to go out right now and watch Blowout by Brian De Palma. It is his best film. If you like suspense thrillers, you really won't get anything better. 
And if you haven't seen some of his other films like Obsession, The Fury, Dress to Kill and Body Double, if you like that kind of thing, he is really, really good at it. So all his films are recommended, but Blowout is recommended most of all. This brings us to the main feature of the episode, the film that never got made. Cinema has a lot of these tall tales of the ones that got away. Great films and passion projects by your favourite directors that got stuck in development and never happened. If you're as nerdy as I am, this means you could speculate endlessly on what might have been long into the night in one of those conversations you might have in the pub. Hey, remember pubs? I find the stories behind these films interesting, so I'm going to go into that a little bit. And if you're interested, I'm going to try and point you in the direction of where these stories are told in more detail on the web. Here in episode one, I'm looking at John Carpenter's Firestarter. It was the Stephen King adaptation he was lined up to direct after The Thing in 1983 or 84. He was at his peak at the time. He'd just signed an eight-film deal with a major studio, and this was the film he wanted to do next after The Thing. In the end, that fell through. Firestarter ended up being made by a less talented director, to say the least, and John Carpenter filmed a different Stephen King book, Christine, instead. John Carpenter was really riding high at this point when he was offered the film. Uh, he'd gone from 1974's Dark Star, which started out as a student film but ended up being released uh, in, and being a minor cult hit. He followed that up with 1976's Assault on Precinct 13, a tremendous urban action film that played out a Los Angeles gang's all-night attack on an almost abandoned police station as if it was Night of the Living Dead. In 1978, he hit the big time with Halloween. It's one of the most profitable films ever made, invented the slasher film genre, and it took Carpenter's skills with horror and suspense and his use of his own music and lighting and his filming style to a mass audience. 1979 saw him doing quite a well-regarded Elvis TV movie, which isn't a classic John Carpenter suspense film, but it did team him up with Kurt Russell for the first time. He followed up in 1980 with The Fog, which was another, another hit. It was like horror, suspense, ghost story. It's not the same as the other films he'd done, and it showed he wasn't a one-trick pony because he did that in quite a different style. In 1981, he did the brilliant Escape from New York, which is a classic sci-fi action film. Again, kind of inventing that subgenre. When you look at everything that's come since in films in that style, he really was the first person to do that. And in 1982 came The Thing, his masterpiece. It's a study in paranoia and claustrophobia as a creature that can mimic any living thing hides inside one of the men in a remote Antarctic research post, striking without warning. It also features some astonishing alien creature effects as the creature takes out each member of the cast one by one. So in 1982, John Carpenter's stock is really high with the studio. He's making the thing, it hasn't come out yet. They're looking to line up whatever his next film is gonna be, pretty much giving him a free hand to do whatever he wants. And what he wanted to do was to adapt Stephen King's novel Firestarter for the screen. So John Carpenter's riding high at this point, but compared to that, Stephen King is in the stratosphere. He was going from one best-selling novel to the other. In the mid-70s, he came out with Carrie, which sold a million copies. That was his debut novel. Salem's Lot did even better. The Shining was huge. Then The Stand, which many regard as his finest novel. The Dead Zone, and a big hit. Firestarter in 1980, and then Cujo in 1981. Although he's varied his output in recent years, Stephen King at this point is clearly seen as the master of horror fiction. He's popular not just because the stories are scary, but he manages to infuse ghost stories and vampires and things you might have heard of before. With this real grounded reality, these terrifying horror stories seem to be happening in places you would recognise to people you would recognise. So he's hugely popular and 
the film industry can't get enough of him. At that point, almost all of Stephen King's novels that he'd published under his own name rather than his Bachman pseudonym had been adapted or in the process of being adapted for the screen. It was getting to the point that an adaptation of one of his books could be greenlit by a film studio before he'd finished writing it. When John Carpenter actually got round to adapting Christine, filming started literally one week after that book had been published and was on the shelves in bookshops. So we've got a writer of novels that everyone's interested in, a director of films that everyone's interested in. They're both at the top of their game, about to see one of the, those books adapted. Firestarter is a good book. Doesn't generally get listed in one of Stephen King's top 10, but it's got a lot going for it, and certainly a lot that a good director like John Carpenter could use for a terrific film. That seems like a match made in heaven, right? Uh, a, a classic film in the making. Um, and somehow it didn't work out that way. Um, John Carpenter was fired. He was he was paid off by the studio not to direct uh, Firestarter. He went off and did Christine instead, uh, which is good, but it's not one of John Carpenter's best films and it's not one of the best Stephen King adaptations. And Firestarter ended up being made by a guy called Mark Lester, a bit of a journeyman director who did Commando. Uh, the Firestarter film that we got to see really isn't very good. The reason John Carpenter was fired from this film was that the studio saw the job he did of The Thing when it was finally finished and came out uh, and lost confidence in him, didn't think he could do a good job of Firestarter, which completely blows my mind. As per the line in The Thing, you've got to be fucking kidding. When I watched The Thing for the first time, it was a good 10 years after it came out, admittedly, because I was way too young to see it at the time. Um, and in conversation with the film fans at that time, if you said you liked John Carpenter or you liked good scary horror films, the first film anyone would mention would be The Thing. It's a masterpiece. Everything from the sharp script, the effects, the music, the atmosphere, the director pulling out the stops, a great cast on top form. You couldn't ask more for a film uh, of its type. In fact, I feel like stopping recording, going back and watching again right now. That's how good that film is. So how do studio execs, people whose job it is apparently to know about making films, find them uttering the words to John fucking Carpenter. I'm sorry, John. After watching what you did with The Thing, I no longer have confidence in you making a horror film for me. Which, um, if you rewind to 1982, I mean, the reason for that is, um, amazingly, The Thing didn't do very well. Its box office was okay, sort of broke even, but not really a hit. It came out the same week as... Uh, Blade Runner, and very uh, very soon after E.T. had come out, it's a summer film set in the Arctic. It just didn't catch the public mood, maybe. But the critical response to this film was brutal. People who'd been complimentary about John Carpenter before, people whose taste in films is generally not too bad, absolutely hated this film. They said it was nothing but a gore fest. They hated every single aspect of it. They hated the bleak pessimistic worldview, the fact that the paranoia stops the, the people dealing with the, the creature properly. Some of the stuff they say is absolutely insane. They're saying, oh, well, you know, why isn't it more kind of positive and uplifting like E.T. was? Which doesn't make any sense to me. Who comes out of watching Halloween, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Alien, The Omen, Dawn of the Dead, and thinks, well, that was uplifting and optimistic. It, it, it's just one of those things where the the standing of a, a director and the success of a film is such a fragile concept in Hollywood that if something goes wrong like this, you just 
you're just dead to them. It also didn't help that a lot of Stephen King adaptations seemed to be coming out and getting made at the same time by different studios. They thought the schedule was going to be a bit crowded. There was some demographic data that said maybe people weren't as interested in horror movies as they were before. And obviously the public mood was for something a bit more uplifting at that time. But it also shows that the studios didn't really understand what they were working with, because from a marketing point of view, they shouldn't really be showing the thing in, as a sonic blockbuster anyway. How much better would it be if that was being shown autumn or winter around about Halloween and it's a snowy, terrifying snowscape and it's uh, exactly the right time to go out and watch a horror film on a dark night? But whatever happens, the thing was a real failure, a real knockback for John Carpenter. As a result of this, the Universal, the studio, insisted on cutting the budget for Firestarter by two-thirds from like 27 million down to 9 million. So all of a sudden, he's got no money to work with. And essentially, they were just trying to get it to quit, which he did. What we're actually looking at here is uh, dismissing the version of Firestarter that was made by someone else and imagining what the much better, far superior John Carpenter adaptation of that film would look like. And the reason we're doing that is because the Firestarter film that came out, frankly, is crap. The director doesn't have any of the visual flair of John Carpenter. There's this, the music, the atmosphere, the shocks, nothing really works properly in that film. It looks like an episode of the A-Team. It's got some good actors in it, like uh, it's got some Oscar winners like George C. Scott and Louise Fletcher, Martin Sheen's in it as well. A lot of them are just phoning them in. There's nothing on the page to work with from the characters. And George C. Scott is horribly miscast as a psychotic Native American, which just, if you haven't seen Firestarter, it's every bit as horrible as that sounds. So just to get everyone up to speed, the storyline of Firestarter is this. In the late 60s, maybe call it early 70s, given the film took a little bit longer to get made, a government experiment by a shadowy organisation referred to in the book as the shop, but some sort of variant of intelligence or the CIA or something like that, takes place where they pay impoverished students to be injected with various substances to see what it does to them. It turns out to be absolutely horrible. Some people go mad, kill themselves, strange things happen to them. Some of the people who underwent that experiment gained various powers. A young man gains powers of telepathy and mind control. Uh, he falls in love with and marries a woman who is in the same experiment who had much milder powers. They have a child who, by the time the actual story we follow uh, takes place, is eight years old. That child turns out to have unbelievable powers, powers to uh, move things or set fire to things with her mind, some sort of pyrokinesis. So it's one level up from carries telekinetic powers in, in, in Stephen King's debut novel. The shadowy government organisation responsible for all this has kind of put that project uh, in mothballs and isn't doing it, but when they find out that a child has been born with incredible powers, they want that girl, they chase her down, they'll stop at nothing, including murder, to get hold of her. Obviously, the father wants to uh, protect his daughter and goes on the run. The daughter herself is a tiny child with the usual temper tantrums and impulse control and not really the proper ability to control her power, which makes her pretty much an accident waiting to happen, a bomb waiting to go off. The book follows how that story plays out, how the government organisation chases down 
two ordinary people and how they fight back and how the girl's terrifying powers come to the fore. All the things that could be ingredients for a very good story and a very good film. If you were going to see a John Carpenter version of this story, you'd probably keep the, the Drew Barrymore, who was very, you know, a little child at the time and ended up playing the girl with the powers, Charlie. The rest of the cast, look, I'm not saying no to Martin Sheen and Louise Fletcher, they would have been good in the film as well, but you would probably change almost everything else. Starting with the script, which has got really clunky dialogue, it's very expository, there's nothing very sharp and snappy about any of the dialogue that anybody says to each other. It's made by people who don't really have a great uh, street cred or, or film reputation of their own, so no one felt confident enough to change or streamline Stephen King's story to make it work on screen. As a result, it totally loses its its momentum about halfway through, where in the book they are caught and taken to a special facility where people conduct experiments on them. And in a Stephen King book, you kind of follow the story over a long period of time. All, all sorts of things have been going on in the minds of the characters and various other things can happen to build tension. And there's a character called John Rainbird who gradually becomes obsessed with the, uh, the girl and wants to kill her. And you can do that in a book, in a two-hour film, you can't do all of those things. And it just drags on for a very long time. So a not very well-made film with not very good special effects, not very good suspense, shocks and characterization, sits there and dies for 40 minutes before you finally get some sort of final act where, as you can imagine, things catch fire, blow up and all sorts of crazy shit happens. So the first thing that would have been worked better with uh, John Carpenter's version would be the script. Now you can actually see the scripts, the first and second draft of the scripts that were written for the uh, for the film. It didn't get any further than that. And you can already see that it would have been a better story with uh, John Carpenter and his team in charge. You would still have the problem that we mentioned with Blower earlier in the episode, that the public mood wasn't really interested in kind of downbeat government conspiracies. But you know, bear in mind that there's a sinister government agency uh, chasing down a creature in, in ET. You can still do that kind of thing, but it's a bit of a harder sell. The idea of not winning at the end because the government just kills everybody wouldn't be such uh, an easy topic to, to market, but you could still do it. And all of those elements are captured much better in the, the version that John Carpenter was writing. The first draft of the screenplay is by a guy called Bill, Bill Lancaster. He's the son of Burt Lancaster. He, he sadly died young of a heart attack, but before he died, he, he won a Writers Guild Award for the Bad News Bears films that he wrote. He also wrote the script for The Thing, which is absolutely brilliant. Not just great dialogue, but the way it builds the atmosphere of paranoia and dread. Absolutely brilliant. You can even see it on the page in this in this script. He's really good at building the tension. The opening scene in the first draft of the script absolutely kicks ass. Miles better than what you see in the finished film. And you can just imagine someone like John Carpenter, when you see some of the other films that he did with terrifying things that happened, you can just imagine what a great job he would have done with that. What it still had was it was still a little bit like the building blocks of Stephen King's story just laid out one after the other and it needed to be polished, kind of as you'd expect from a first draft of a script. The second draft was done by a guy called Bill Phillips. Now, he's not particularly well-known for a lot of other work, although he did do some TV stuff that was nominated for awards. He's now a visiting professor in film at Dartmouth College, which is quite a well-regarded university in America. Um, and he gave an interview explaining the process for writing scripts, is that he would let his guys just write drafts of the script and then... Carpenter would do a final rewrite and usually 90% of what's in the script would survive, but 
but the polish that Carpenter gave those scripts was so important to the outcome of the film because he would add just the right moments of scares and suspense and, and building of atmosphere because he knew what he was going to shoot. He knew what he was going to direct and put in the camera. Um, as it happens, Bill Phillips also collaborated on another unrealized project with uh, John Carpenter about 10 years later, uh, an attempted remake of Creature from the Black Lagoon, which I'm attempting or thinking of covering on a future podcast. Now, with these scripts, you get an idea of what they're trying to do. There are some interviews you can get hold of about how they were making the film. They were interested in the, the chase element, the idea of being hunted across the country. Uh, Carpenter was attracted to the idea of the government finding out about the girl's terrifying powers and running her down because they wanted to use her as a weapon. Um, he put the same concept to pretty suspenseful effect when he made Starman a couple of years later. Now, this would be a much more sinister treatment that he would in Firestarter, but you've physically seen evidence of John Carpenter doing a good, a good job of a story with this kind of engine at its heart. Um, the second draft, if you read that, you can see um, that he's added a lot of things to the, the basics that, that Lancaster's done. There's an opening scene he wrote where when the baby is born, they're not sure that she's breathing, so she gets smacked on the backside by the midwife, and in response to that, the, the fetal heart monitor explodes, and you immediately go, oh my God, this baby's got the power to destroy planets. Um, and it's also lots of human detail about the way people talk to each other and the way people relate to each other, which would really hook the audience. And that's what you presumably need from any Stephen King story. The human element is what makes quite far-fetched things, you know, realistic for people to watch. And um, they were really, really working on tapping into that fear that you would have of a small child with destructive powers, the same way the first Omen film was terrifying, because it's a four-year-old with all this power that could kill anyone. Um, this script, that this second draft, John Carpenter called it the best script that never got made. Now, it's very easy to say that. It's very easy to say these things about the film that never got made, that doesn't ever have a, a scheduling delay, no one breaks their leg and has to delay filming, nothing ever goes wrong. So, of course, it's the best film that never got made. But um, you can certainly see that this film would have been a lot better in Carpenter's hands. The opening of the scene is more powerful. Um, you can't imagine John Carpenter would have directed these scenes so flatly in the early 80s when he was on the form that he was on. Um, even these scripts that weren't particularly fine-tuned were already streets ahead of what was actually filmed. Um, that doesn't mean it would, it would definitely have worked. There's always a bit of a concern over that pacing. Um, but they, they do solve that problem eventually in that second draft. You don't spend as long just stuck in the facility. It's a lot quicker. The, the, the scenes in the facility where the girl is trapped in a room and being loomed over by people are scary. Um, the, the idea that a child is surrounded by these strangers and doesn't know where her father is, that's a frightening concept. I could see that being filmed really powerfully by John Carpenter. The idea that this eight-year-old could have uh, just blown everyone up with it, just a, a blink of her eyes because she wasn't happy with the, the sandwich she's just been given. It means that everything should have been on a knife edge and should have been terrifying. The other thing about the John Carpenter version, to bear in mind, is that his pick to play the father who is separated from his daughter and has powers of his own, was Richard Dreyfus. Now, uh, the guy he plays in is a guy called David Keith. You'd recognise him from a few films. Nothing wrong with him as an actor, but he's not Richard Dreyfus. The idea of Richard Dreyfus playing this character, the father terrified for his daughter, the father with these powers, the things that he's wrestling with, I think that we all know that would have been a step up from the actor that we actually got. Um, 
there's nothing concrete to say Richard Dreyfuss had agreed to be in the film, but there's no reason to disbelieve it. He's never denied doing the film, and it's generally part of the story of this film. Richard Dreyfuss was going to play the lead opposite the girl in this film. Like I said, it is, it is easy to say whether this, you know, would have been a good film, because plenty of great films, or, you know, didn't end up being that great, or potentially great films didn't end up being, being that great because the production went wrong. But there are some indications from other John Carpenter films that this was right in his wheelhouse. Like we said, Starman, the, the storyline of Starman, it worked, it was dramatic, it would have worked in this film. Jeff Bridges as the lead character was really good, so it shows that John Carpenter could work with a great actor and get him to carry the story. The problem of some of the iffy performances that you got in the actual Firestarter film would have been solved by having a better script and a better director. And also the fact that they, they got rid of George C. Scott characters completely. It just wouldn't work in a shorter film. So they just skipped over the problem by cutting him out, which is just a classic example of good, good writing and good planning by someone who knows what they're doing. Uh, and just bear in mind that the things that John Carpenter is famous for are the music. He always does a great job of the music. And in the film that you finally get, Tangerine Dream tries to do something John Carpenter, and it's just not nearly as good. None of those cues that bring a scary moment to life are in there. Um, the widescreen Panavision uh, film style that John Carpenter's got is perfect for creating the kind of negative space that you need for a horror film to be scary. The lighting and the mood in all of the other films that he's done, you know it would work in this. The, the film that you actually get to see is almost completely shot in daylight. It just doesn't look interesting at any point. You know John Carpenter's going to fix that problem. Um, the script is so much sharper, especially for the girls' dialogue. Because while Drew Barrymore's a good actor, she is like eight or nine when she's doing this film, and a lot of what she says just sounds like baby talk. So, you know, suspense and action and chases from all the films that you've seen John Carpenter do, like Escape from New York and Assault Precinct 13, you know he could have done a job, a good job with this film. In terms of things that were bad, we'll never find out if they really solved the pacing problem. Um, it might have been that that did slow things down. Maybe that never would quite quite work. They've shortened it in the script. I'm sure the editing could have been quite sharp, and the way that it's written has this macabre, scary element to it. But there is always a risk of that. There is a risk with Stephen King's writing sometimes on film that sometimes the stories don't stand up when they're literally portrayed on screen because you don't have that the narrative voice that Stephen King gives his, his characters when when they're when they're in the book. Would John Carpenter have avoided that? He didn't entirely avoid that in the Christine um, adaptation that he did, even though it's quite good. Um, but overall, it feels like it would have been better. There are other things you could perhaps have done. Maybe the child is too young. Maybe Drew Barrymore was just too young and an eight-year-old doesn't quite have the ability to talk to the uh, talk to the camera the way, for example, Ellen Stranger Things did. She's just that little bit older. She's like 11 or 12 at the start of that film. And also bear in mind that John Carpenter did do some bad films, did do some poor adaptations of books like Village of the Damned, but not when he was in this form, not when he was uh, coming off that run of terrific films and the terrific films he did after this. Um, there was a lot more dramatic mileage to be had from this film than we actually got in Mark Lester's version. Um, and there was a lot more you could do about saying, who are the monsters? The, the, another feature of John Carpenter films and Stephen King books and, and other kind of horror books where it's not just the, the creatures or the, the demons that are scary, human beings are scary. And you know that every single element of this could have been tighter and sharper and more scary. Even the fact that some of it is filmed in quite mundane locations. John Carpenter's 
perfect for that. He made Halloween as scary as you like, and that was filmed in a nice, safe little suburb. He managed to make the nondescript corridors of the the Antarctic station in uh, the thing absolutely um, terrifying because he establishes the geography of his of his sets. The the camera often takes you through the house where the story is going to happen or the corridors where it's going to happen, and that makes the audience. Uh, live there, uh, inhabit the, the environment themselves and know there's something frightening around the corner. So it's not just a case of what he did well in other films. It was that up to that point, each film John Carpenter was making was taking it up a level. He did Halloween with Tuppence Hatney and then had more money and made something interesting and sharper with, with The Fog. He then made Escape from New York on a bigger budget and that film's absolutely fantastic. He took that up a level with the thing. Every single thing he had in, in the thing was a bigger budget, more ambition, a bigger story, more things to do, and every single aspect of it worked. And there's no reason to suspect that with more money and a Stephen King adaptation, all those elements that would have made an audience flock to see his film, that this wouldn't have been an absolutely tremendous hit. And all the ambition that John Carpenter was displaying from film to film was surely going to get realised in it in a fantastic way. What we get is a TV movie promoted beyond its its powers. What we should have got was a real classic of the era from a, from a great director. The difference between a scary story being told by someone supremely talented and someone who's only okay, it's the same as the differences of a joke or a comedy being told by someone who's great and someone who's only average. The timing and the skill and, and, and the way of getting it absolutely right makes a huge difference. You laugh, you don't laugh. You're scared or you're not scared. And what we missed out on is possibly what could have been John Carpenter's best film or certainly up there with his best films. And as I said, I like to imagine a parallel universe where a film does better than it deserved to or gets made when it should have been made. So in this parallel universe, just as Blowout gets more recognition at the time, The Thing gets the recognition it deserves at the time. Well, the studio just toughs it out and says, we're doing this, you missed, you missed out there. The Thing's a great movie and we believe in John Carpenter, we're going to let him make his next film. And as a result, this film gets made, that he doesn't get that knockback, that loss of confidence. The next round of films that he makes, his clout and his uh, ability to swing things with the studio that we talked about earlier are all better. You know, maybe Big Trouble in Little China gets more support than it deserved because that just got completely mishandled in the marketing department and wasn't as good a you know, as, as successful film as it deserved to be. There's a, there's a parallel world out there where I think we got to see a lot more of John Carpenter than, than we did. And I think someone who's, whose talent deserved better treatment by the film industry is more fully realised. Uh, and who knows what more we could have seen from this guy. And uh, that's why this really is the one that got away. Final section of this episode of Double Reel is what I promised at the beginning, uh, a remake hate watch. I like to think of this as my two-minute hate, although I think I'll struggle to keep it down to two minutes. My general opinion on remakes is that they are usually unnecessary, hateful, wrong, and an insult to the original film. There are too many remakes these days, and combined with all the franchises and sequels that are being made these days, it seems like original stories are being frozen out. 
I am, of course, a bit of a hypocrite here because there are remakes that I like. The Thing that we talked about in this film and Scarface are both remakes and both very good. Um, but I think a lot of them aren't. And I think the problem is, is that once upon a time, remakes were made when someone had a genuinely different or interesting vision from the first film. The first film of a story wasn't maybe done as perfectly as it could have been. And someone came up with a better way of doing it. Or they just had some other genuine reason for doing it. Now it seems to be the default that they'll just remake everything. And it's not a pleasant experience for people who like the original film. So, honourable exceptions to those remakes that uh, were good films and were justified. The 1939 Wizard of Oz, for example, no one realises that's a remake. Bogart's version of Maltese Falcon, also a remake. Star is Born seems to have done well. I'd have been remade several times because the entertainment and music industry moves on every few years. And that story seems to work when you tell it again. So all that being said, what I'm talking about are the remakes that were made for no good reason by people who weren't as good or as original or had as much to say as the people who made the original film. They did it because the studio needed to fill the gap in the schedule and because they don't have enough respect for writers and ideas. And as you can tell, I'm getting myself quite worked up about this and I'm going to really let loose on one. So the remake that I'm covering in this opening episode is Total Recall. It's the remake released in 2012, directed by Len Wiseman and starring Colin Farrell, Kate Beckinsale, Jessica Biel and Brian Cranston. So the first thing to say is that I wouldn't be averse to a remake of this story per se. I like the original. It's a tremendous uh, Arnie film. Paul Verhoeven did a great job and th there's absolutely nothing wrong with that version. But it was a big budget action version of a Philip K. Dick science fiction story that had some different things in it that didn't make it to film. So if someone was going back to the original story and wanted to make a mind-bending, twisted sci-fi film that does what Philip K. Dick did so well in the tradition of Blade Runner and all of these other great adaptations of his stories, I wouldn't be averse to that. It's also worth mentioning that the original person who was going to make Total Recall was David Cronenberg. And I would have liked to have seen that film, and I'm going to do that as one of those films that never got made in another episode. So it's not that you shouldn't remake Total Recall, or that there isn't another version of the story that can be told. It's just not this one. So just in case there's any doubt, I hated this film. I watched it on a plane, still felt like walking out. I was so annoyed and angry and pissed off by this film, as well as being bored and completely unentertained. Those are on to where it follows the original film fairly closely in that there is a character called Douglas Quaid who is an ordinary working fella and has ambitions or dreams of being more interesting or exciting and has always dreamed of, of Mars and being a spy in Mars. And he goes to a company called Recall who give you virtual reality holidays where you can imagine you're anyone you like. Uh, and from there it goes wrong. He's given a dream or a, a, a false memory of being a spy on Mars, uh, but then suddenly people start trying to kill him, and it's possible that maybe he really was a spy on Mars and had his memory wiped, and this has unlocked something. The story follows from there where some people are trying to kill him and some people are on his side, and because he doesn't entirely remember what was going on, he has to piece it together as he goes. So far, so similar. Where it varies from the original film or the, the Paul Verhoeven film is that they don't go to Mars, and... The 1990 film is really good, and this is a pile of shit. First problem is their choice of director. The director they could have had originally uh, in 1990 was David Cronenberg. I think when you look at what he did, The Fly, and some of his more personal films like Dead Ringers and Scanners, he would have done something great with that. He would have probably used more of Philip K. Dick's 
will they, won't they, mind-bending, reality, warping uh, storylines, that would have been worth watching. The version that we did get to see, Arnie was in great ass-kicking form. Paul Verhoeven's really good at violent action with things, films that he's done like Robocop. He's also very good at giving the public what they want in terms of action and blockbuster thrills, but just containing enough sly satire and commentary that if you're interested and you're looking for it, you can see that and enjoy it as well. What you get here is a hired hand who does whatever the studio tells him to and has done underworld films, and that's about it. Apart from Total Recall, Len Wiseman's only real uh, departure from Underworld was uh, a Die Hard sequel, Die Hard 4, another film that's absolutely rubbish and insult to the original series. But that's not a remake, it's a sequel, more than just him to blame for that. But his career prior to Total Recall gives you nothing to indicate that he's going to give you something different or interesting that would justify remaking what was already a perfectly decent film. In terms of the cast, I like, I like Colin Farrell. I think he's a really good actor. I think he could have given you a much better uh, performance and been in a much better film than this. I don't really pin that much blame on him, although he does have this tendency to pick some terrible films to star in. Jessica Biel is fine. Ryan Cranston I love, but is underused and, and not really, you know, he's wasted in this film, let, let's be honest. Plenty of other decent supporting actors like Bill Nye and John Cho. Kate Beckinsale's in it as well kind of doing what she does in all of her films. She wears tight clothes and kicks people. And fair enough, she's good at it. There's not that much differentiation between her and Jessica Biel in terms of they almost wear identical outfits and have their hair done the same way. They're just fighting on different sides. Apologies for the spoiler. Um, and apart from that, you don't really have anything worth watching in this film. There's honestly nothing to commend it. And apart from the fact that it's just not very good and doesn't really add anything to the original film. Where it really pissed me off was the fact that it stole, borrowed, or spoofed and parodied so many other uh, better scenes from better films that didn't just make me angry about what it had done to Total Recall, it made me angry about all the other films that it's not as good as that it was blatantly ripping off. Just pausing for a moment to say, in the interest of transparency, some of what I'm saying in this uh, hate watch review of, of Total Recall uh, I'm referring to the same notes that I used when I reviewed this online on IMDb. Yes, I'm the kind of film nerd that goes on IMDb and does a user review. Maybe some of you are the same. So it's going to sound familiar if you're the kind of person that goes and reads the IMDb reviews. I'm not stealing from that review. I wrote that review. This version of Total Recall is a classic example of why I object to these unimaginative remakes, because what they want to do has nothing to do with making a good film. What the executives behind Total Recall 2012 wanted to do was to pillage better films for sets, costumes, style, action and ideas for their own film. And they don't just stop at Total Recall. They steal wholesale from Blade Runner's um, set design and visuals um, to portray a grungy dystopian future. Um, that's all a bit 1982, so they give it a CGI effects airbrushing style from Steven Spielberg's Minority Report, which is another superior version of the Philip K. Dick story. Now, they don't even stop there. Think about this. This is about a man who can't remember his past. He's got people out to kill him. He keeps showing flashes of his lethal spy and fighting abilities while running at full pelt and trying to find the truth as he goes. Now, surely, if you're going to make that kind of film, you're going to try and distance yourself from the Bourne trilogy. Well, you'd be wrong. They absolutely rip off that as well. The opening scene of 
uh, recall where Colin Farrell immediately starts fighting people and suddenly finds himself able to use fighting techniques that he didn't know he had. Straight out of the Bourne trilogy, you might as well have got Matt Damon to play the same part. Except Matt Damon's already done a Philip K. Dick film and that was quite good, so why would he tread over familiar ground? But it's not just that it's over-familiar and derivative that I object to. There are plenty of quite derivative films that I've enjoyed watching. What really grates is what a poor, weak, pale imitation it is of all the ideas it's stolen from other films. There are some pieces that they've lifted from the 1990 Total Recall film, like the animatronic head that Arnold Schwarzenegger uses to get through security on his travel to Mars. That's in there. Not good. There's a bit where the uh, the hooker with three breasts turns up. I don't know why bother. They're not on Mars, but, but they throw it in anyway. Um, the, the Blade Runner sequences, they don't look like a dystopian future of bleak uh, visuals that you get in, in Ridley Scott's film or any other decent sci-fi film. It looks like a Friday night in Tokyo. I don't know why they spent $125 million making something look like a T-shirt commercial. One of the bits that pissed me off the most is a scene where Colin Farrell sits down in front of a piano and plays a few notes on the keyboard and has a daydream about his past, which couldn't be more stolen from the unicorn scene in Blade Runner, and it's just insulting. Really, really ground my gears. And it's not enough that they steal from Blade Runner, Minority Report, the original Total Recall film and the Bourne trilogy. They even managed to steal from The Running Man, which isn't a particularly great film in itself, but when all you can think of with this new version of the story is he ends up with a group of rebels that are trying to jam transmission. Yes, you've also managed to be an inferior copy of The Running Man as well as an inferior copy of all the other films you've done a shit job of. In terms of the story itself, in between these blatant acts of theft from other films, it doesn't even manage to convey any drama. Yes, we have characters trying to kill Donald Farrell and some characters trying to save Colin Farrell. None of the action is particularly well put together. I mean, I'm sure it took some skill to kind of make that helicopter look like it was flying over a building, but none of it's remotely interesting or dramatic. The whole thing just looks like someone playing a video game. Run, jump, shoot, climb over this, jump down that. There's a whole bit where he's jumping from block to block, and it might as well have just been a big-budget version of Tetris. The storyline doesn't con compel or thrill remotely at all. You can't feel or taste the kind of grim future you're not really that bothered about the story or how it turns out, which is, let's be fair to Arnold Schwarzenegger, he can't act as well as Colin Farrell. But in Total Recall, you can see his veins throbbing, you can see him sweating and exerting himself and looking confused and angry about what's going to happen next. Colin Farrell here has just got a series of stunts to perform. It's an absolute waste of everybody's time. So it's a routine version of much better films for people who, for some reason, don't want to be properly engaged or excited by a film. I was on a plane, so I didn't have anything else to do, and I still wished I was doing something else. I could have caught up with some paperwork or, or, or read some emails while I was doing this, and I've got as much out of it. The only entertainment I got out of the entire film was trying to think of alternative titles based on the films they'd stolen from, like The Blade Minority or Born Runner. Other than that, they got absolutely nothing out of this film. And what's going to happen is you're going to be uh, child surfing through the TV one of these days and think, oh, great, Total Recall's on. You're going to flick over, and it won't be the Arnie version, It'll be this version, because you know that's what happens. And it is like they want to edge out and destroy everything that was good about the original films and replace them with shit versions. And this is really just one of the most offensive examples of that. Often what you get from science fiction films like this is some sort of dystopian look at your future. It says, if you're not careful, 
this is what the future looks like. But in reality, the message from this remake of Total Recall is that if you're not careful, this is what cinema is going to be like, unless executives are somehow stopped from imposing this shite on its audiences. So I'm going to take a deep breath there and relax. I'm glad I got that off my chest. I really don't like that film and I don't like remakes, so it was nice to just finish with a bit of a burst of, uh, of anger to get that out of the way. And those are all the things that I was looking at covering in this opening episode of Double Reel. If anyone did download it and you're still listening, I'd like to thank you for listening and persevering through to the end. I realise that as I'm an amateur and just pulling this together, uh, much of it has been a bit clunky. I don't even use a, a, a proper microphone. If this takes off, I might invest in one. But as it stands, I've made this with basic technology and, and, and tried my best. And hopefully you found it interesting and worth listening to. Um, I'm going to continue doing this and I'm going to stick with the same format for a while, which is to round up what I watched uh, this month and what I tried to watch. Just to try and just try and give a flavour of what it's like to be an armchair fan who, who watches what he can when he can. Maybe that's the same for you. I'll do another hidden gem next month, and another remake hate watch, and another feature on a film that didn't get made, and try and stick to this magazine format with a different feature for you to read through or listen to as you go. Um, hopefully, as I go, I'll start to get a little bit slicker and better at doing this, and it will be a little bit easier to listen to without listening to me breathing or clicking or moving my chair. That's all for this first ever episode of Double Reel, which as I promised at the beginning was just another Film Nerds podcast. I wrote, presented, edited and mixed the episode. I used Audacity for the recording, editing and mixing and Anchor FM as my podcasting platform. They're very intuitive and user-friendly tools, so anything that sounded good was down to them and anything that sounded crap was down to me. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin McLeod. Blowout is available for 4 dollars to buy on Amazon Prime Video at the moment. The Blu-ray doesn't seem to be in stock anywhere, but is worth seeking out if you can find it. The visuals and especially sound are worth experiencing in the highest resolution you can find. This is a much more in-depth look at the story behind John Carpenter's failed Firestarter project on a podcast called Masters of Carpentry. My research was based on publicly available articles and videos online. If you like John Carpenter's film music and you'd like to imagine what his soundtrack for Firestarter might be like, he released an album called Lost Themes, containing standalone music he composed and performed. Listening to it, you can imagine some of the tracks featuring in his films. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe, and tell your friends, and hopefully you'll tune in next time.